Jodcast, February 2024 edition, with Melissa Manuela Azombo, George Bendo, Bijas Najimadin, and Fiona Porter. Welcome to Jodcast, and with me in the studio today are Melissa and Bijas. Hi. Hello. Could you both briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Yes, I'm Melissa. I'm currently a first-year PhD student in astronomy and astrophysics, studying exoplanets. Hi, everyone. I'm Bijas. I'm a first-year astrophysics PhD student studying the role of magnetic fields in star formation. And this is the second episode in 2024, and the second episode since we brought the Jodcast back. And we are going to try experimenting a bit with a new format. And so we're going to go to the news. But instead of just having somebody in a different audio clip reading the news, we're actually going to do the news ourselves. So the first thing worth mentioning in the news in astronomy and space science in the past month has featured two moon landers that have both run into problems. The first of these moon landers was Peregrine 1. This lander was built as part of a partnership between NASA and the private company Astrobiotic, not Astrobiotic, although I think Astrobiotic would be a cooler name. Anyway, this model has been a new organizational model for conducting space science research in the United States. The mission had a large number of science goals, including studying the lunar exosphere, examining lunar rocks, and making measurements of the magnetic fields and radiation environment. The lander was launched on the 8th of January 2024 from Cape Canaveral in Florida, but it soon developed a propellant leak that pushed the spacecraft off course. To the credit of Astrobotic and not Astrobiotic, which was responsible for operating the spacecraft, the company was able to diagnose the problem and regain control of the spacecraft, but this used up so much fuel that the spacecraft would not be able to make a soft landing on the lunar surface. Although I think it would have been able to make a hard landing on the lunar surface. Given this, Astrobotic decided to direct the spacecraft into the Earth's atmosphere and it burned up over the Pacific Ocean on the 18th of January. Had the lander not failed, it would have landed on the moon on the 23rd of February, 2024, and it would have been the first American spacecraft to do so since the Apollo missions. Despite this failure, NASA plans to launch a few more lunar public-private missions to the moon in the next year, and this will include another lander launched by Astrobotic. Brilliant. Still not astrobiotic, then. No, still not astrobiotic. Not probiotic, either. The other lunar lander in the news is the Smart Lander for Investigating Moon, or SLIM, which sounds like it should be the name of a Japanese anime space cowboy, but instead is a spacecraft built by the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA. SLIM is primarily designed to test Japan's technical capabilities for landing the spacecraft on another object in the solar system. In particular, the spacecraft is designed to land in a very specific location with a precision of 100 meters. The lander also has two miniature lunar rovers as well, and another goal of the mission is to see how well these mini-rovers operate. 
Slim was launched successfully on the 6th of September 2023 from the Tenekashima Space Center in a rocket that also carried the X-ray Imaging and Spectroscopy Mission, or X-RISM, which is a new X-ray space telescope. Slim took a very long but fuel-efficient route to the moon, eventually landing successfully on the 19th of January 2024. However, the solar panels were not angled in such a way that the spacecraft could fully operate, and so controllers on Earth had difficulty operating the lander. Nonetheless, it looks like Japan will be able to get some limited use out of the lander. Additionally, even if SLIM does not operate well, the spacecraft did succeed in landing on the very precise location on the moon, and the mini-rovers have deployed as expected. That's a really great feat. Today in this world, different countries have been successful in landing lunar rovers on the moon. I hope that SLIM would be able to complement several other countries' efforts, like India, who has recently successfully landed Chandrayaan on the moon, and they've got some interesting results. So excited to see more upcoming research in this field. Yeah, I think Japan is something like only the fifth country or sixth country to actually land something on the moon at this point. Aside from India, which you mentioned, there's the United States, which landed entire people, and Russia, or the Soviet Union, as it was called when they actually landed stuff on the moon. And China, I believe, has also landed stuff on the moon. And I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. I think the Lunar South Pole is an interesting location to explore, and more countries are interested in exploring that region. So I think many of the upcoming lunar missions will be focused on landing their rovers in the South Pole to explore minerals and other exciting things in the region. One of the interesting things about the poles of the moon as well is that it's potentially a location where ice can be found. There are regions in those locations which are completely shielded from sunlight, and therefore you could have very cold temperatures which would allow the ices to exist for millennia, and those ices could be resources for astronauts who land on the moon. I think it's also very exciting to see this from this type of mission in comparison with the other upcoming lunar mission that will carry humans within it. We can appreciate the different types of results that we're going to get from both missions. It's exciting to see this ahead of that. Yeah, people want to land on the moon in part so that they can use that as a staging ground to get to Mars, actually. So that is one of the motivations to land people on the moon. There is still scientific interest for landing on the moon as well. As I mentioned with the Peregrine 1 mission, which was going to make all sorts of uh, measurements. Now, they aren't as interesting as landing human beings on the moon, but they would actually produce potentially much more science just because you could have the robots focused on science 100% of the time with 100% of your resources, whereas with landing people on the moon, you also have to devote significant resources to supporting those people on the moon and also getting them back. Of course. I hope that sending people to the moon is extremely useful for astronomy in particular because it can help us to set up new powerful radio telescopes and with the absence of atmosphere and other obstructions, it will be easier to make precise observations of very distant objects, and it can help move the field forward. 
And that's an interesting point too. The far side of the moon in particular could be a very good place to set up radio telescopes just because the far side of the moon would be completely shielded from all of the radio signals from Earth. Setting up telescopes that work in the other wave bands on the moon kind of has interesting pluses and minuses. One of the big challenges would be that the sun would shine on any side of the moon for about 14 days at a time. So if you had an optical or infrared telescope on that side of the moon, it wouldn't be able to operate. That wouldn't affect radio telescopes as much, though. Interesting. On another note, Anzo Penzias, who was one of the co-discoverers of the cosmic microwave background radiation, or the radiation emitted soon after the Big Bang, passed away on the 22nd of January at the age of 90. Penzias was born in Munich, Germany in 1933, but his family fled to Germany at the outbreak of World War II and eventually settled in New York in the United States. Penzias studied physics at City College of New York and Columbia University and also served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, which gave him a strong background in microwave instrumentation. After graduating with his Ph.D. in 1962, Penzias took a position working on microwave receivers for radio astronomy at Bell Labs in New Jersey. Penzias and Robert Wilson were working with a receiver on a horn-shaped antenna on the Bell Labs campus when the two of them encountered problems with excess microwave background noise that seemed to be coming from all directions. After eliminating the possibility that the emission was not coming from anything on Earth, including pigeon droppings within the antenna, and after consulting with Robert Dick at Princeton University, Penzias and Wilson were able to identify that the emission was the cosmic microwave background emission that had been theorized in early models of the Big Bang Theory. Penzias and Wilson published their findings in 1965 and won the Nobel Prize for their discovery in 1978. After this discovery, Penzias continued to work at Bell Labs, eventually retiring in 1998 and leaving a major impact on the achievements of the Research Institute. That's some very profound news for not only the field of astronomy, but it would be specifically for the subfield of cosmology. It just shows a legacy that he's left behind because this is something that we can, will continue to work on to this day to further understand this topic. Um, I don't know if, Bajas, you have anything to add. I think uh, cosmic microwave background is one of the most fundamental discoveries in astronomy. And as you might know, cosmic microwave background is important in understanding the early density structure of the universe and how the Big Bang actually occurred. Yeah, I would say that the discovery of the cosmic microwave background ranks very high up there in terms of uh, the astronomy discoveries of the 20th century. In terms of cosmology, the only other one which I can think of that was equally important would have been the results from the COBE spacecraft, which found the anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background, and also measured the temperature of the cosmic microwave background. But those results really depended on the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation in the first place, so those results really depended on Penzias and Wilson's discoveries first. And that wraps up the news, and let's go to the interviews. Next up, join us on the tour of some of the best stalls Fiona uncovered at the Blue Dot Festival last year. First, here are three astrophysics stalls, covering things from 
the largest telescope collaboration on Earth, to the exploration of our closest star, the Sun. And now we are now over at the Square Kilometre Array Observatory Stand. Uh, so I'll pass the mic over. Thank you. My name's Ray Brederoda. I'm what is referred to as a solution train engineer, and I'm working on this project. Essentially, what we're looking to do is to build the world's largest scientific instrument. We're building the largest radio telescope, and we'll have, in fact, multiple telescopes, one located in South Africa called the MID telescope because it's looking at MID frequencies. And we'll have another telescope in Australia, Western Australia, called the Low Telescope because it'll be looking at lower frequencies. And these telescopes will be the most sensitive telescopes built, radio telescopes built in the world once they're complete. So we're busy with a construction project at the moment, uh, active construction project. And my role is really on the software side of things. Um, there is a massive software challenge in terms of big data, processing the data that comes from these telescopes. But essentially, we are looking to answer fundamental questions you know, and do transformational science. So fundamental questions like, are we alone? You know, testing Einstein's theories of gravity, uh, looking for what are referred to as pulsars and gravitational waves, star formation, galaxy formation, and uh, fast radio um, transient bursts, things like that. So exciting stuff. And we're manning the stand over here at uh, Jodrell Bank. And um, so, yeah, we've got lots of interest over here. Um, our headquarters are actually located uh, just on the other side of the level telescope. And that is where we're coordinating the construction of these telescopes. We have teams in South Africa and in Australia, but literally we have uh, 16 partner countries around the world spanning all the way from Canada in the west all the way to Australia in the east and teams around the world all collaborating. So essentially our job is to answer the um, fundamental questions and we do that through global collaboration and innovation and that's what's exciting about our project. We are now at the stall for the James Webb Space Telescope. Thank you. I'm Chris, Chris Lovell. I work at University of Portsmouth and I use James Webb data to try and understand how early galaxies form and how they evolve through time. So I build computer simulations and then James Webb produces all this amazing data that basically shows that all our models are, are rubbish and wrong. But this is great because uh, it means we can, uh, we can learn more things, we can understand more the physical processes going on within these galaxies. On the stool today we've got some beautiful images from James Webb, makes it very easy to sell. We've got an infrared camera that essentially shows uh, thermal energy and it kind of demonstrates how infrared telescope like James Webb has to be cooled down otherwise it's going to be shining in the light that you're trying to detect. And we also have some examples of spectroscopy. So we have a few um, gas tubes showing different elements and essentially shows you how James Webb is able to detect these elements in very distant galaxies and that tells us not only what the galaxies are made of but also helps us to detect how far away they are so it tells us the distance to those galaxies and that tells us lots of different things about dark energy and dark matter. We're now here with the stand for the ESA Solar Orbiter. The Solar Orbiter mission that we're talking about here is a European Space Agency mission and it's a really exciting mission that's still fairly young. 
and it aims, well it is indeed, getting close to the sun. So this is the kind of novel aspect, getting up close to the sun, taking pictures close to the sun and also measuring all the emissions that come away from the sun and flood over the spacecraft. So the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter mission is our kind of latest in the fleet of spacecraft that we use to study the sun. We launched it in 2020, for actually from America, from Florida, but it is a European Space Agency mission. So we're here this weekend because we're just really keen to make sure that people have an opportunity to find out about the mission, but also find out about the sun itself and why we want to study the sun. Because it is this dynamic, active object sends out eruptions into the solar system and eruptions that affect us here on the earth so today in our stand we've got lots of pictures of the sun we've got a scale model of the sun to the earth which is basically a sphere which represents the sun but inside is over a million polystyrene balls and that just sort of gives a sense of scale and then we've got bracelets that have got beads on them that change colour in the ultraviolet light and so that's to encourage people to sort of get out in the sun and see how the beads change colour and, and know that actually the sun's sending more light in our direction than just the kind of visible light that our eyes pick up. So we're hoping lots of people come and, and, and sort of explore the sun and enjoy the sun like we do. Blue Dot is about combining all aspects of science, not just astronomy, with culture and a wider awareness of the world we live in. So here are three more stalls sharing their projects, changing the perceptions of science and exploring the most remote locations on Earth. I'm now at the Science Girl stand. Hi, I'm Heather Williams. I'm Director of Science Girl Network, celebrating and supporting women in science and also a medical physicist at the Christie Hospital in Manchester. So we've been here all three days in the Starfield on the first day on Friday. We were talking about the wonder of the tiny things that are smaller than us, right down to subatomic particles, but doing experiments with chemistry and also looking at things under microscopes, leaves, flowers, worms, all sorts of stuff. On Saturday, we were talking about the wonder of the ginormous, so things bigger with us all the way up to the size of the known universe. Uh, we limited ourselves uh, to talking about how shapes give strength to um, structures by building a Leonardo dome. We built a solar system and designed our own planets and we talked a bit about how planes fly and how we get those massive objects into the air. And today it's the wonder of you. Uh, we're talking about how we tend to centre ourselves in the universe and view everything relative to ourselves but actually we're really quite amazing. Um, we're looking at fingerprints, DNA and how medical imaging is used to look inside the human body. And now I am with the British Antarctic Survey. Hiya, I'm Em Newton and I work with the communications team at British Antarctic Survey. Um, yeah, we're here at uh, Blue Dot today and we've got a really nice stand that is kind of giving visitors a full uh, insight into life in Antarctica and all the science that we do there. So the British Antarctic Survey works primarily in Antarctica, but also in kind of Earth frozen places, so also the Arctic. And we're really interested in the way that those frozen places affect the climate and the way that our world works generally and you'd be surprised how much those frozen places really kind of influence the global climate and weather and temperatures around the world so on our stand today we've got uh two huge pyramid tents which are uh the tents that uh antarctic scientists and travelers will use to go out into the field uh, we've got people talking um about the creatures in antarctica um we've got uh several kind of underwater autonomous vehicles and gliders that we use for oceanography um and we've also got a couple of people talking about how we're uh working towards net zero 
uh, at all of our stations in Antarctica. So we have uh, six stations in, in total in kind of frozen remote places around the world. So as you can imagine, it's like a big challenge trying to make those places really sustainable, but away from like basically the the, the grid. Um, so that team's also doing some really interesting work um, talking about how they're using renewable electricity um, and other strategies to try and get us to net zero by 2040. But yeah, no, it's really lovely to speak to so many people and so many kids as well who are just so um, kind of motivated to do something about climate change and uh, yeah, Antarctic science and, and the science of Earth's frozen regions is really important to understanding that. I am now at the community mapping stands. Hello, so uh, I'm Timna. Um, I work at the University of Manchester and I'm one of the volunteers with community mapping. So what we do is we get people to come into our little tent, sit at a laptop and help map unmapped parts of the world. Uh, so the project started in Uganda, uh, but we're now sort of branching out over to Kenya as well as we're kind of pretty much getting there on our maps of Uganda. We've been coming to Blue Dot for quite a few years now. Um, started off being called the Huckathon back in the day, so people might kind of be familiar with that. Now had a little rebrand, community mapping. And yeah, so people draw around uh, features on the map, such as houses, buildings, uh, huts and tracks to essentially identify where people live and how to reach them for provision of humanitarian projects. And it's great. You can uh, access it online at any time at communitymapping.org and all of our contact details are on there as well. So if you have kind of any questions about how it works or would like to run an event in like a school or where you work, then we're really, really keen to put on lots more events because the more data we can get, the better, basically. Next up, we bring you an interview with Dr. Alex Cameron from the University of Oxford. Dr. Cameron is at the forefront of researching early galaxies using the James Webb Space Telescope. In this captivating conversation, our hosts, Fiona and Alex, delve into the intricacies of galaxy research. They discuss how astronomers can determine the elemental composition of a galaxy by observing different wavelengths. This information can be used to infer the galaxy's properties and even its age. Dr. Cameron also shares insights from his early research conducted before the launch of JWST. This research focused on nearby galaxies from which we can gain more information, thereby building a more complete picture of galaxies' behavior. Interestingly, galaxy evolution isn't a standard process. Some nearby galaxies are less evolved than one might expect, and they mimic early galaxies in appearance. These galaxies have been affectionately given the nickname Green Peas and Blueberries. Hello, we are joined today in the studio by Dr. Alex Cameron. Hello, Fiona. Hi, Alex. It is good to have you here. So you are currently working at the University of Oxford on some science involving JWST. That's correct, yeah. So I'm working with JWST data with some colleagues at Oxford trying to study, essentially trying to understand the very earliest stars and galaxies that formed in the very early universe. So we do this by using JWST to to look at the most distant galaxies that we can see in the universe. So we're seeing them as they were in the early periods um, after stars and galaxies started to form. So in particular, what I'm interested in is measuring things like the chemical abundances uh, in these galaxies. This is interesting because all of the chemical elements in the universe other than hydrogen and helium, so anything heavier than helium, so oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, all of these elements are formed 
essentially by stars. And so these elements are accumulating throughout the age of the universe as a result of generations and generations of stars forming. And so by measuring these elements in the very early universe, it can tell us a lot about what the first generations of stars were like and how they were enriching the, the environment around them. So obviously, JWST, as of time of recording, has been up and running for about a year and a half at this point. So do you mind if I ask what you were doing before JWST? So before JWST came along, I was a lot more focused on studying very nearby galaxies. So when we're trying to sort of build up this picture of how galaxies have formed and evolved across the whole of cosmic history, we can kind of come at this question from a, f from a few different angles. So one question that we ask, and this is what we're doing with JWST, is, is to think about what were galaxies like in the distant past. But also, if we look at nearby galaxies, we're seeing them as they are in the present day. So it's telling us what do galaxies eventually turn into. But we can also study them in a lot more detail because they are closer. We can go in and look at not just measuring sort of the total chemical abundances in a, in a single distant galaxy. We can go in and look at how different chemical elements are distributed throughout a galaxy. And also things like how, you know, when supernovae explode, we, we know that these can push large amounts of gas out of galaxies. And when we study nearby galaxies, we can measure how that is distributing these heavy chemical elements within galaxies and, and around galaxies. So essentially, you're looking at sort of two different stages of the evolution of galaxies then, because the ones nearby, obviously, have had quite a long time to evolve, whereas the ones from JWST, some of them are really quite far back in cosmic time. Although I'm curious, I don't actually know, how far back have we managed to go in terms of time? So the, the earliest galaxies that we've so far been able to probe with JWST are around about 13.2 to 13.3 billion years into the past. And so given that the universe is only about 13.7, 13.8 billion years old, we're sort of probing galaxies as they were within the first few hundred million years after the Big Bang. One of the things that's been interesting from JWST is that we're finding that already these galaxies at very, very early times after the Big Bang already actually have moderately high levels of, of a lot of these heavy chemical elements. So it's clear that they're getting on with the job of forming stars and synthesizing these heavier elements quite quickly after the Big Bang. So naturally, these are going to be in some ways quite different from the galaxies we see today. Can I ask you a bit about how they're different and how we can tell that they're different? So what techniques do you use? So the way that we measure the chemical abundances in these galaxies relies on the fact that different chemical elements have very specific wavelengths or colours of light that they like to emit. So the way that we measure chemical abundances in these galaxies relies on studying light that comes actually not from stars, but from warm gas surrounding the stars. So this is gas from which those most recent stars have formed. And then as the stars light up, they heat that gas up and, and that gas itself actually emits a lot of light. Different chemical elements have very specific wavelengths that they really like to emit light at. When we go in and, and measure how bright the light is at, at each different wavelength, so each different color of the light, we see different signatures of hydrogen, of oxygen, of, of, of nitrogen, and we can use ratios of the fluxes of how bright each of these specific elements are emitting to infer what the relative chemical abundances of these are. And I remember you mentioning during the talk you gave here that some of these uh, chemical elements are dependent on things like there being very ionized gas, that is very, very hot gas, where 
you'll only see certain things happening if the surrounding area has reached sort of a certain temperature threshold, roughly. Yeah, that's right. So it gets a little bit tricky because the it's not quite as simple as just taking the flux of an oxygen line and the flux of a hydrogen line and dividing the two and saying this is how much more hydrogen there is than oxygen. What we instead have to do is account for the fact that at different temperatures and at different densities, each of these elements will emit this light at varying levels. So we have to very carefully account for what the conditions in this gas are, how, how much it has been heated by the, the, the stars. And this in turn then depends on what the properties of those stars are. So there, there is a lot of complex modeling that goes into this. But we just sort of, you know, do the best that we can at building this overall picture, which includes the chemical abundance ratios. Well, since you've managed to have a bit of a look at them at this point, how different are stars in the early universe compared to the stars we see today? So we know, or or at least we expect, that the very first generation of stars that would have formed had to have formed, as you say, out of just hydrogen and helium. And so these are stars that we often call these stars population three stars. These population three stars have been theorized, but they've still so far evaded our detection. So everything that we have seen with JWST has still had these metal in them. So they're clear signatures of of a significant fraction of of oxygen. So this certainly does remain a very big goal of, of JWST observations is to try and potentially identify some of these population three stars. But I think the picture that's starting to emerge is that maybe these population three systems will be so faint and so short-lived that actually maybe we, we really might not, even with JWST, be able to observe them and we might have to wait for even better facilities in the future. But you never know, we might, we might get lucky. But certainly, you know, the stars that we are seeing, as I say, they do have some amount of metals in them, but they're not as metal-rich as, as stars we typically see in the nearby universe. So it is starting to become clear that there are differences in the typical populations of stars you see in these galaxies compared to the nearby universe, but we haven't quite gotten as far as, as seeing these most extreme, completely metal-free stars. And during your talk, you did also mention that some of these very, very old stars, you know, uh, 13 billion years in the past, do actually have a resemblance to stuff that we still see today. And they had excellent names. Yes, that's right. The galaxy population that we see in the universe is incredibly diverse. And so when I say that galaxies in the early universe are different to galaxies in the present day universe, I'm, of course, talking in sort of general terms. They're different to the typical galaxies that we most commonly observe in the nearby universe. There are some galaxies that exist in sort of, you know, forgotten corners of of the universe that have not undergone as much evolution and still to this day look a lot like some of the galaxies we see in the very early universe. These have, as you say, been given quite playful names. So green peas and blueberries are names that have been given to these galaxies. These names come from the fact that when you look at these galaxies, they're very small and compact, and they have these very strong green and blue colors, which come from some of the very strong gas emission and the very young stars that that exist within them. But basically, these are galaxies that are clearly undergoing very violent periods of star formation at the moment, similar to what we typically see in in galaxies at much larger distances or much earlier earlier times. And it's been suggested for a long time that that maybe these more exotic nearby galaxies are very reminiscent and very analogous to galaxies in the early universe. And and the more that we study about these galaxies, it does seem to be that that that, that is the case. So that is with a year and a half of data from JWST. So 
I suppose the logical thing to ask next is, well, what's next? I think the main thing is that the data that we've so far looked at is still a relatively small fraction of, of what we will end up obtaining over the full lifetime of JWST. And so I think what we don't have a good understanding of yet is these findings that we're, we're starting to see how representative they are of all galaxies at these early times. It's possible that we've been a bit biased towards just kind of the tip of the iceberg, maybe some of the more extreme systems. And so I think, you know, the next thing is, I mean, JWST is constantly observing round the clock all year round. And so there's just constantly more and more data coming in. So as we continue to build larger and larger samples, we will just slowly get more of a picture of the properties of, of all different types of galaxies in the early universe. And, and so there might be new trends that start to emerge based on all of that. Thank you very much, Alex. It was great to have you here. Thank you, Fiona. It's been a pleasure. Next up, we have the things which don't fit in everywhere else, the odds and ends. One of the first things that I would like to introduce in the odds and ends section would be the discovery of a mysterious object in the Milky Way galaxy by Manchester astronomers. In the vast expanse of the Milky Way, a team of astronomers from the University of Manchester and Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn have stumbled upon a cosmic enigma. This newly discovered celestial object defies conventional categories, being heavier than the heaviest of the non-neutron stars, yet lighter than the lightest of the non-black holes. This mysterious object was found in the company of a millisecond pulsar a highly magnetized rotating neutron star that emits beam of electromagnetic radiation out of its magnetic poles. This cosmic duo is located at a staggering 40,000 light years away. The astronomers are buzzing with excitement as they believe this could be the first discovery of a radio pulsar black hole binary. A binary system is a cosmic dance where two objects are close enough so that their gravitational interaction causes them to orbit around each other. In this case, it's a radio pulsar and what could potentially be a black hole. Uh, what I would be interested to know out of that discovery is for them to remain in that binary system, how far away is that pulsar from that black hole's event horizon? There's clearly a great enough gravitational pull for them to be in a binary system, but not great enough for that pulsar to get the fate of the black hole's event horizon. The results are not published yet, so we don't have the information regarding the separation between the black hole and the pulsar. Let's look forward to the publication. Definitely. So it's exciting to see what will happen when those results are published. In the meantime, I would like to talk about a new discovery. This is a new type of protostar. So astronomers have discovered a new type of elderly giant star nicknamed an old smoker. This is a type of star that can sit at the heart of our Milky Way quietly for decades before suddenly letting out clouds of smoke. There is a researcher who is part of the international team on this discovery named Dr. Zen Guo. He explained just how they set out to observe protostars while they were undergoing a great outburst that lasts for months to decades. These outbursts actually happen in the slowly spinning disk of matter that is forming a new solar system, he says. They help the newborn star in the middle to grow, but make it harder for planets to form. He added that we don't yet understand why the disks become unstable like this. So this discovery was made through an international team, come from the UK and Chile to name a few. 
and this team was led by Professor Philip Lucas of the University of Hertfordshire. That team found 32 erupting protostars, increasing to up to 300 times their brightness. There were also some that increased to 40 times their brightness, so there is a range there. But with most of these eruptions, they're still ongoing. This is fantastic because it will give astronomers a rare occasion, sometimes in astronomy, to analyse many of these mysterious events throughout their evolution. The researchers used something called a VISTA. This is the Visible and Infrared Survey Telescope. They use it to analyse over 200 of the most variable stars from their sample of billions of stars. While most of those stars were very clearly variable, astronomers used a VLT, that is the Very Large Telescope, to analyse spectra of the stars which instigated doubt. They confirmed that seven of these stars were definitely a new type of red giant star. And this type of red giant star is heavily concentrated in the innermost part of the Milky Way, known as a nuclear disk. This is a region where stars tend to be richer in heavy elements, which makes it easier for dust particles to condense out of the gas within the cooler outer layers of red giant stars. Yet the team are still puzzled as to exactly how this then leads to the ejection of clouds of dense smoke. Understanding this could change what we know about the way that elements are distributed across space. Well, I've always been a fan of debris disks and dust disks around stars, even though I primarily work with interstellar dust and star formation in other galaxies. So... I found these results kind of interesting. This is kind of a new phenomena. And I do wonder if there's something about having the extra heavy elements in the regions near the center of the Milky Way, which helps to trigger this type of puffing phenomena, or old smoker phenomena, I guess. Yes, that's a very good point. While I would expect so, this isn't something that they've alluded to yet, at least within the press release of their research. I would say it does make sense because you have heavier elements that are then cooling to dust in these outer regions of the dimmer type of red giant star. Well, thank you for that, Bijas and Melissa. And now on to feedback. And... We're still trying to get a bit organized here, uh, restarting the Jodcast, and we have not been able to get our hands on any emails which would have come through our website, but we do have a lot of feedback from Facebook. Perrin Montford says, During your interregnum, I even went to Jodrell Bank looking for you. Wonderful New Year's present to have you back, they say. Francis Day says, yes. Still following and look, we have been rewarded. Great news. Daniel Preston tells us, more please, you're awesome. James Walters says, fabulous news. This last week I was wondering if the Jodcast would ever return. Ellen Piercy says, yay, I really missed you. Then includes the best gif of all time, a gif of dancing Snoopy. Brilliant. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can also reach us on Twitter or X by following us at Jodcast. You can connect us at Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. 
Thanks to Rob Bredigior, Alex Cameron, Chris Lovell, Heather Williams, and the people from the ESA Solar Orbiter and Community Mapping Stands at Blue Dot 2023 for the interviews. The audio editors were Lily Correa Magnus, Jesse Marin, Louisa Mason, and Bijas Namijanin. The producers were Louisa Mason and George Bendo. Until next time, John.